Well, we come now to timer started. We come now to our introduction to systematic theology lessons. And today we are beginning a new section, a new doctrine. Now today's lesson is going to probably seem a little odd because it's going to be a very broad introduction and it may end up being short. But as I was preparing for what we're about to look at in the next uh, five weeks, I've just had this burden to stress really just a single point that I want to get across to you today. And a large part of this burden arises from my own experiences doing theology, which I'll touch on in a minute. But if you recall, in the first six lessons that we did in this study, we considered the doctrine of Scripture. There we established first our epistemological foundation, that is, we established where our knowledge of God comes from. We then considered the multiple attributes of Scripture. We looked at its necessity, its inspiration, authority, and so on. Once we established where our knowledge of God comes from, Brother JP then gave us six lessons on the doctrine of God. We considered who God is and what God is as revealed to us in that scripture. We looked at his triune nature as well as his incommunicable attributes, that is, those attributes that belong to him and are unique to him alone, as well as those communicable attributes, those attributes that he shares with us to some degree. All that we have been looking at for the past 12 weeks is nicely summarized in the first three sentences that we just recited when we do every Lord's Day. I believe the Bible to be the only inspired, infallible, and errant word of God and the only true standard for all of life, faith, and practice. I believe there is but one true and living God who is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now at this point, you may be tempted now to think, all right, we've talked about the Bible, we've talked about God, now let's move on to creation. That seems like the logical place to go, right? That seems to be the natural sequence. I mean, what's left? Bible, God, now man and creation. But it, and if you look at our standards, if you look at our confession and our catechisms, we're coming up very quickly on the doctrine of creation. But not so fast. There is a doctrine that is immediately established after the doctrine of God and before the doctrine of creation. And that is the doctrine of God's eternal decree. Not only do our standards include this doctrine, the divines thought it so important that in our confession there is an entire chapter dedicated to this doctrine alone in chapter 3 before we ever get to the doctrine of creation. Why is that? Why did our forefathers in the faith see this doctrine as so important? Well, I like something that the late Mark Lloyd-Jones wrote. He said, before we come to consider the doctrine of creation, there is something that we must consider first. And we do so because the Bible tells us about it. It is this. The Bible, before it tells us what God has done, leads us to the character of all God's activities. There is a great deal in the Bible, as I want to try to show you, about the way in which God does things. 
And it is important that we should consider that before we consider exactly what he has done. There are certain great principles which underlie and characterize all of God's works. In other words, before God proceeded to create the world and man, God had thought, God had willed, and God had determined certain things. So this consideration must come in at this point. Certain things were decided in the eternal mind and counsel of God before he did anything at all in the matter of actual creation. And it does seem to me, therefore, that this is the obvious chronological, if I may use such a term, certainly the obvious logical sequence which should be followed. Now the description which is given in the Bible of God's manner or method of working is what is commonly called the doctrine of the eternal decrees of God. These are things which God determined and ordained before he had done anything at all. Well, I believe Lloyd-Jones is spot on here. Beloved, there are a lot of people out there who after talking about the triune God want to just slide right into the doctrine of creation and skip over this important doctrine. But I believe that is a fatal mistake. Why? Because this doctrine acts as a bridge, so to speak, or as Jones used the phrase, a logical sequence. If we were to just move on from talking about God to creation and how God created the animals and man and the planet, which is all wonderful and great stuff, and we're going to look at those things, but if we do that without first having considered the character and manner in which God works, that is the how and the why, then I think ultimately you're going to fail to understand the what. So let me give you a prime example of this from my experience. As you guys know, we've talked about, there exists a group out there called Hyperpreters. I was a part of this group for seven years. They believe all prophecies fulfilled. I used to be very active and vocal in that group. But thankfully, by the grace and mercy of God, he pulled me out of that heresy. But here's the thing. There are people who are in that heresy who agree, agree with a, a great deal of what we would have to say about the what of creation. There are many in that camp, for example, who would agree with us that God created the world in all things in six 24 literal days and rested on the seventh. They would agree with us that there are no large gaps of time in the creation of count. They would agree that evolution is a myth. They would agree that Adam and Eve were the first humans and that sin entered into the world through their act of uh, disobedience. Now, not all of them agree with that, but many do. And those were things I affirmed, even as a hyperpreterist. Yet even though these hyperpreterists affirm all these things I've just stated, we are worlds apart, pun intended, in the final analysis of creation because according to these people, everything that you see going on in creation, the curse, sin, death, disease, plague, star starvation, and we can add looting and rioting, murder, all the natural occurrences of earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes that bring mass destruction, all that is going to continue on on this earth forever. There's no end in sight. Now, if you were to ask them how it is that they end up with such radically different conclusions to what Christianity has taught since the beginning, 
Many of them will just say, well, it's just because we have a misunderstanding of the two-time text. That's all it is. They'll assure us that they agree with a great deal of what we say regarding the what of creation. But is that really all there is to it? Did Christians and hyper-preterists start off at the same point, going down the same path, and it wasn't until 100 miles up the path that we decided to split ways? Or is it the case that Christians and hyper-preterists took off in opposite directions at mile marker one? Well, I would argue the latter is the case, and that's eventually why I left the heresy. Yeah, but Jason, we agree with you that God created the world and man. We agree that you, with you that he did all this in six 24-hour days. We agree with you that Adam and Eve are our first parents, that all mankind descends from them. Well, that's all fine and dandy, that you agree with much of, of that. But you have left something extremely important out of the equation. You don't agree with the why. You don't agree with this on the doctrine that logically precedes the what and explains the why for the what. No hyperpreterist can affirm chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession. It's impossible. No hyperpreterist can tell me why God has this going on forever. Sin, plague, diseases, and all the rest. And that, my friend, is right around the mile marker where they got off the trail. It isn't just about time text. And I say right around that mile marker because a strong case can be made that they actually started going off the path in the last section on the doctrine of God. But you see the point that I'm making here. What we do with this doctrine if anything at all, is going to greatly affect how we view the rest of the doctrines that follow after this. And this isn't just an issue we have with hyperpreterists. It is this doctrine in conjunction with the doctrine of God in Scripture that is the reason why many of you find yourself perhaps getting into little debates with friends and family on Instagram over free will, over election, over predestination. It is this doctrine in conjunction with the doctrine of Scripture and of God that has caused such a divide between us and Armenians, Pelagians, semi-Pelagians, the Greek Orthodox, and all the rest. Beloved, this is a major deal, which is why I said last week that I was getting a little nervous the more I thought about it, having to teach through this, and why we need to handle this doctrine with such great care. And as I have already hinted to, it's not just the case that how we understand this doctrine affects what we will understand in what follows with creation, salvation, eschatology, and so on. But let's not forget what we have already established in the doctrines of Scripture and of God. Let's not forget what we have said concerning the attributes of Scripture and the nature and attributes of God according to the Scripture. Because just as what we do with this doctrine of God's eternal decree will affect where we end up later with the doctrines that follow, so what we have already established in the doctrines of Scripture and in the doctrine of God will affect what we do now with this doctrine of God's eternal decree. Let me put it this way to simplify it. 
We are going to say some things in the next few weeks regarding the doctrine of God's eternal decree that will shock and offend many professing believers. And if you've read chapter 3 of the Confession, you already know what I'm talking about. But beloved, if you've been paying attention for the past 12 weeks regarding what we have already established in the doctrines of God and the Scripture, then what we say here should not shock you or offend you. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not denying the fact that it's going to challenge you and stretch your mind, possibly more so than any other doctrine. But beloved, the last 12 weeks have been prepping you for this. We have already established, for example, the necessity, inspiration, the authority, the self-authentication, the sufficiency, the clarity, and the finality of God's word to us. And so now when we come to this doctrine of God's eternal decree and the questions of election and predestination, I'm not interested in how you feel about it. I'm not interested in how anyone else feels about it. And you shouldn't be interested in how I feel about it. Our source for determining the nature of this doctrine is the infallible, inerrant word of God. It's not you, it's not me or anybody else, it's not taking a poll of people and how they feel about it. There are going to be some things said in the next six weeks that may cause some people to respond, well, that's not fair. Well, fair according to who? According to what? I mean, take a look around you. We have thousands of people right now in multiple cities rioting, stealing, and killing people, all in the name of fairness and justice. As Andrew Sandlin pointed out this week on Facebook, more people have now died at the hands of protesters than at the knee of a seriously, uh, ser serially abusive cop. More people have died from the protesters than what started the whole thing. So I could not care less what the world has to say about fairness and justice. Who in the world can look at this reprobate world of mankind and all its fallen, fallenness and sinfulness, this world apart from the mercy and grace and knowledge of God, and see all the hell that we have created and think for even a split second that we are in any place at all to judge the almighty, eternal, and holy God. It's ludicrous. I can hear the Apostle Paul saying in the back, as he did in Romans 9, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? I can hear Job, uh, God speaking to Job. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Beloved, you would have to be a complete fool to think that God is subject to your feelings and to your ideas of fairness and justice. 
What has God said about his eternal decrees? That's the question we need to be asking. And while God has not revealed everything there is to know about this, his decree, he certainly has revealed a great deal for us to know and to consider. And so if at any time in this study you find yourself getting anxious and you start to feel even maybe a spirit of rebellion rise up in you, one of the things that I want you to do is to stop right there and ask yourself, where's that coming from? You may need to go back and review your doctrine of Scripture. You may need to go back and review your doctrine of God. Could it be that you are starting to stray away, that you're starting to leave that path because you have strayed away from the necessity of the Bible, from its authority, from its inspiration, from its sufficiency? But also, what about what we have already established concerning the doctrine of God is revealed in the scripture. Beloved, the character of God's decree, as Lloyd-Jones worded it, is going to flow out of the character and nature of God. Recall what we have already established concerning God. In some, as we recite every Lord's Day, we believe according to the word of God, there is but one true and living God who is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Here we see, as, as Brother JP has taught us, the attributes of God. There are those attributes that are entirely unique to him and to him alone. He is pure spirit. He is infinite. He is eternal and unchangeable. And then we have those attributes that he shares with us to some degree. That is his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. But even in those attributes that he shares with us, those attributes as they are found in God are qualified by those attributes that he does not share with man. And so we say, for example, that not only does God have wisdom and knowledge, but his wisdom and knowledge are infinite, without bounds. His wisdom and knowledge are eternal. There was no beginning of his knowledge, no beginning of his wisdom, and there's no end to his wisdom and knowledge. And his wisdom and knowledge are immutable. His knowledge doesn't change. It's never changed, it's not changing now, and it's not ever going to change. But what I wanna ask you today is, has that sunk in to you yet? Have the implications of what we've been saying and established so far, has that set in? If God is completely and entirely self-existent, pure spirit, dependent upon no one outside of himself, and he has not changed, he does not change, and he will not change, and thus his wisdom and knowledge are eternal, infinite, dependent upon no one, and has not changed, does not change, and will not change, then what do you think are going to be, as Lloyd-Jones worded it, the great principles which underlie and characterize all of his works? Is what we have established already concerning the nature and character of God true, or is it not? And if it is, then why in the world would some of us conjure up some notion at this point that at some point in eternity past, which itself is kind of self-contradictory, God was sitting up in heaven, looking in his crystal ball, 
gazing into the future, observing creation and mankind. And he's sitting there, you know, he's, he's observing to learn and to figure out, okay, how am I going to do this? How are we going to plan things? How are we going to accomplish my purposes? Is that the God we've been talking about for the last six weeks? The last 12 weeks? It's absurd and it's impossible considering what we have already established concerning God. How can there be a creation that exists independent of God in his knowledge when it entirely depends on him to exist to begin with? And how can it be said that he observed this creation that somehow is existing apart from him to learn from it so that he can plan out his ways? It makes no sense, beloved. It's as if, metaphorically speaking, people are half asleep for 12 weeks and they're like, okay, amen, brother, I got you. Yeah, you know, God's this, this, and that. And then all of a sudden we get to this decree of God, this doctrine, and all that just flies out the window. And now we're like, hold up, that can't be true. It doesn't sound right. This doesn't sound fair. It doesn't sound just. But again, I ask, how could it be otherwise? given what we've already looked at. You know, like something Lloyd-Jones says in this regard, in the light of the things we have already considered about the being, the nature, and the character of God, this doctrine of the eternal decree must follow as an utter, absolute necessity. Because God is who and what he is, he must work in the way in which he does work. As we have seen, all the doctrines in the Bible are consistent with one another. And when we are considering any particular doctrine, we must remember that it must always be consistent with everything else. So as we come to study what the Bible tells us about the way in which God works, we must be very careful not to say anything that contradicts what we have said, already said, about his omniscience about his omnipotence and all the other things that we have agreed together are to be found in the scriptures, in the quote. Beloved, that is so important to understand. I can't stress it enough because if I already shared, it's, it's heavy on my heart because of my own experience and my own failures to do this and the problems that it, it has created for me and for my family. And I don't want you to go down that same path. When we hear of some of the difficult doctrines that we're going to discuss in the next five weeks regarding the comprehensiveness of God's decree, the foreordination of all things without exception, the predestination of men and angels and the reprobation of others, we are going to get into some areas that are going to shock some people and offend them. And if you end up being one of those people I want you to seriously consider the root cause for why that is. Could it be because there's something that we've already gone over that you didn't catch? Or maybe you did and you forgot it. The Bible, I would argue, is very clear on these matters. Again, it's, it's not easy, difficult, but it's pretty clear on some things. But you know what? No matter how many verses we recite or how clear they are, you're never going to accept it if you have other issues going on. If there's some things that you haven't already got settled in what we've been doing for the last 12 weeks. So make sure that as we go into this section, 
that you have a good grasp on what has already been set forth. And as you move forward, don't forget those things and leave those things behind. Well, my time's about up, so I'll leave you with these last words from Lloyd-Jones. We must approach the subject with humility. We must approach it with reverence. We must approach it by faith and with a ready admission of our own limits. We must approach it with an open mind, seeking and searching for the teaching of the scriptures. We must come in a childlike spirit, ready to receive what is revealed to us, and ready, may I add, not to ask questions beyond the revelation of the scriptures. Well, that concludes our introduction to this doctrine.